Okay. I wonder who got breakfast in bed, anybody? She did. What'd you get? <laughs> Toast. Toast. Burnt. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. Well, apparently, according to uh, GQ magazine, the top uh, Mother's Day present this year is a pair of cashmere pink socks. Ali, that would suit you because they are from the White Company. <laughs> but I don't think the G&Q knows much really because the number two is a pan. A pan. I would not thank anybody for a cooking pan on Mother's Day, but anyway. So thank you, Simon, for what you said uh, about the compromised feelings people can experience on Mother's Day. And yeah, I was thinking about my own mum this morning. And I, do you know, in all this preparation, I hadn't thought an awful lot about her. Isn't that terrible? But I was thinking how grateful I was for what she did for me uh, in spite of her challenging character sometimes. She was an amazing woman and she pointed me to the Lord. Definitely. So Simon's given the title for this, which is a template for motherhood. So we are going to be exploring together what we can learn from Mary about motherhood and how she is a particularly amazing example of qualities that I think we can transfer to all of us, actually, uh, in our relationships with each other and also in our relationship with God. So, yeah, reading the passage is like deja vu, not only back in the carol service, but back in Luke, which we spent a long time in. But um, it, as Simon said, it was really good to dwell on this and think about it without the sort of relentless push towards the big day, which happens every Christmas. I've really enjoyed doing it. Mary was a simple girl who lived a quiet life, we think. But as the events we read about in this passage uh, begin to unfold, we see some of the qualities and characteristics that are exceptional in this young woman. Um, I picked three. There are lots more, but Simon said three was enough, which I'm glad he said. <laughs> because that was, uh, yeah, there were quite a few. So we're going to look at Mary's um, courage. We're going to look at Mary's obedience and humility. I know that's two, but they're, they're together. And we're going to look at the reality that Mary was godly. Luke wrote in his gospel, at the very beginning, if you've still got your page open, um, in, from verse 1 to 4, he talked about why he'd written this, really. And I think it's really important. He said that I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good to write an orderly account of this. Now, I think that's because he really wanted to make sure that we clearly saw events as they happened. He was a doctor, and as a doctor, he would have known how babies happen, seen plenty of them born, I expect, and no doubt he struggled with the supernatural nature of this crazy thing. But he believed, and he wanted us to believe it too. The dictionary definition of motherhood is uh, the state of being a mother. And they suggest that begins at the point of giving birth, or when fostering or adopting babies. I actually disagree with that. I think 
that it starts at the point when you find out you're going to have a baby or when you're fostering or your um, adoption is a reality and you know it's going to happen. At that point, all the planning and the preparing and the hoping and the dreaming begins. I, as Simon said, I work at the Haven and as a volunteer there, when you talk to women who are in the very early stages of pregnancy and ask them how they're feeling or if their behaviours have changed, the answers are really revealing. Very often they'll say they're cradling their baby. You see, you see it, don't you? Poor old Megan was criticised for doing that, but it's, it's a very instinctive thing to do, to cradle your baby. Um, and talking to their babies, even though at the point when most of them find out they're pregnant, which is about five weeks, it's the size of an orange seed, tiny little thing. But nonetheless, that's where the nurturing and the caring begins. I asked a number of women, women that I knew how they felt at the point at which they found out they were pregnant. My sister said she was so sick she couldn't think about anything. Um, and a couple of friends said they were anxious. My hairdresser was scared. She's just pregnant at the moment. Another said she was excited and pleased and wanted to tell the whole family as soon as possible, but was a little apprehensive about the birth. I think I felt the whole thing was surreal and couldn't possibly see how I was capable of looking after another human being. But there we go. Rob said, what about me? <laughs> but Mary was courageous. We find her here, don't we? Um, at home, blissfully unaware of what's going to happen to her. Maybe she was even doing the laundry, who knows? And she was suddenly faced with an angel who utters those iconic words, greetings. You who are highly favoured, the Lord is with you. I wonder if Mary might have known that sort of opening line from her Old Testament. She would have known, I think, that God was going to expect something big of her, something pretty challenging her. She might well have remembered Moses or Gideon or Samuel when God called them. And he called them for a purpose that was going to be costly to them. I think it's no wonder that she was troubled at the words and wondered what manner of greeting that might be. I think she must have been holding her breath as the angel proceeded to tell her what was going to happen to her, that she was going to give birth to a baby boy and call him Jesus. This was a common name, but one really packed with meaning. It means God saves or the Lord is salvation. And her question, I think, when the angels finished his statement, gives us a clue to her intent. She doesn't say no or you must be joking or that's impossible. She doesn't do what Moses did when God called him at the burning bush tried to wriggle out of any commitment and saying, oh Lord, please send somebody else, not me. And she doesn't do what Gideon did in Judges 6 when the angel called him. He said, well, if God's with us, why is all this happening then? That wasn't Mary's position at all. She just calmly asks, 
how will this be, since I'm a virgin? She doesn't either question Gabriel's statement about this baby and who he's going to be. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. She will have known that her people were waiting for a saviour. One commentary I read said that many virgins in Israel would have been waiting for a long time for this to happen to her. But I wonder if that would have come to her mind, I don't know. The prophecies of the Old Testament would have been familiar to her, nevertheless. And her bravery in accepting this potentially life-threatening situation is astonishing. Women who were found to be pregnant without a husband could legally be stoned to death in those days. She had to risk telling her fiancé that she was expecting a baby and he would have been within his rights to have her stoned to carry this out. But Joseph was a pretty amazing man too. And when the angel, another angel, visited him, assuring him that this was of God, he married her facing ridicule himself. But that's another sermon, I think. So for Mary, there would have been much speculation about her morals, gossip, rejection would have been her lot. Her family may well have turned against her. But Mary's courage is to nurture and to protect and to care against the odds. She knew her calling and bravely stood in the face of all these circumstances. She loved courageously, and I think we see this so beautifully towards the end of Jesus' life, when at the foot of the cross, she, after so many other people had abandoned him and left him, was there, weeping, as she watched her beloved son, Jesus, die as a convicted criminal, the most dreadful death on the cross. I was trying to think of something courageous that I'd done for my children. And there was this moment where I jumped in front of the school bus one morning um, to stop it so that my children could get on. But I had to really admit that actually it was probably more out of frustration because they kept missing it every day. So I don't really think that was courage. Yeah, it's a tricky path, courageous motherhood. As mothers, we try to be courageous and sacrificial in our love for our children. And sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes they make choices that hurt or dismay us. Choices we know will be harmful to them. Sometimes we have to make decisions for their well-being that they really don't like. No, you can't have McDonald's every day for tea this week. It wouldn't be good for you. Or, no, you're not going to a sleepover at the age of 10 all weekend. We all remember doing these things. As Christian mothers, our counter-cultural approach, I suggest, to parenthood can and increasingly is challenged by authority figures. I can remember my father and mother's dismay at the Gillick Competency and Fraser Guidelines as they were passed in 1986. 
They were horrified as the states took over more and more control over their children and made the keeping of secrets from parents a regular occurrence in young teenagers' lives. As teenagers were allowed to go to their doctors and ask for prescription medicine and be given it without their parents having any say in it whatsoever. Now I, I recognise that in some cases this has really protected children, but it erodes that parent-child trust and allows the state to take over. I can remember being adamant that um, I wanted to go and see the whole sex ed video at school um, when it, my children were being um, presented with it. And I wanted to see all of it because I wanted to make sure there wasn't anything that I hadn't discussed with them first. There were two of us there and I don't think we were particularly welcomed. But motherhood is not a popularity contest. I think we have all experienced being less popular, less than popular because of decisions that we have made to try and protect our kids. We do it because we love them and we're trying to protect them and stand with them, whatever the cost sometimes. Courage is a quality that Paul writes about in Corinthians 16. And I think it applies to all of us, mothers or not. Stand firm in the faith. Be men and women of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. We need relationship with God to achieve this. And Mary had courage because she knew the Lord. She was also obedient and humble. Some commentators suggest that because of these qualities, God chose her to be the mother of Jesus. But I don't think Mary would have seen it that way. True humility doesn't recognise itself. The minute you start to think, oh, aren't I humble? Pride creeps in. Mary had heard Gabriel tell her that she was highly favoured or blessed. She would have known that that meant receiving God's favour. She would have known that that was an unmerited gift. Grace is an unmerited gift from God. And, sorry, I just lost my place there. Yeah. Yeah, grace is an undeserved, unmerited gift. She hadn't done anything to deserve this. She was a lowly girl from a dead-end town called Nazareth. I've been there. It's not great. You've been there? No. Oof. Um, and miles away from Jerusalem, there was nothing extraordinary about her. If there had been, Luke would have told us. He said he was making a careful investigation. We know she was poor because when she and Joseph went to the temple to sacrifice, they were allowed to give two doves instead of the expensive lamb normally expected. This is permitted for the poor. So she was poor, of low estate, unremarkable, and she knew it. But incredibly, she would become the mother of the son of God who would rule from the throne of David in a kingdom that would never end. Her humble response to this was to say, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. 
trusting, obedient acceptance of an incredibly outrageous prophecy made over her. Humility and obedience are not considered particularly important in contemporary culture, I suggest. We are told that we should put ourselves first because we're worth it. Our society, I think, sometimes views humility as blind self-neglect or even a a sign of low self-esteem. But what happens if everybody puts themselves first? The result is chaos. I like what Mother Teresa says here. If you are humble, nothing will touch you, neither praise nor disgrace, because you know who you are. If you are blamed, you will not be discouraged. If they call you a saint, you will not put yourself on a pedestal. She made a really challenging humility list. There's 15 of them. I'm not going to read them all, but you can look them up. I thought this was really challenging. Speak as little as possible about yourself. Don't dwell on the faults of others. Accept contempt, being forgotten and disregarded graciously. Be courteous and kind even when provoked. Give in in discussions even when you're right. Ouch. I think in many ways motherhood is a incredibly significant, demanding and underpaid job and one that is given little respect often. But if Jesus is willing to humble himself for us, how much more should we be to do this? In Philippians 2, Paul writes, this is the good news version, but I liked it. He always had the nature of God, but he did not think that by force he should try and remain equal with God. Instead of this, of his own free will, he gave up all he had and took the nature of a servant. He became like a human being and appeared in human likeness. He was humble and walked the path of obedience all the way to death, his death on a cross. Jesus is our model, our ultimate model of sacrifice, obedience and humility. And Mary would find this out fully later. I really liked, I found this a mother, um, I can't remember where I found it, but I like what this mother said. She hoped for her children. I would love my children never to boast about what they have. To know when to speak up and fight, but to do it without a shred of pride in their hearts. And to always with the intention to inspire gently, but effectively. I want them to know that being last is not the worst thing in the world and that being first is not the be-all and end-all. To share blessings without asking for anything in return and never to seek revenge. To do good even when faced with enemy attack. That's challenging, isn't it, for all of us, whoever we are, mothers or not. So we've seen so far that Mary was a woman of courage and she was humble and obedient. But I think most importantly of all, and this is what I admire her for most, she was godly. She was a godly person. It's apparent in what she says and in what she does. She loved God. She sang a song, it's just after this passage, the, the very next bit song, where she goes 
and meets with Elizabeth, her relative. And she sings a song of praise to God. And she says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my saviour. She knew she needed a saviour and she knew that God was going to save her. Mary understood that she was sinful and that she needed forgiveness. How far she grasped that that was going to be through Jesus at this stage, we don't really know. But she definitely knew it later on. We find her, after Jesus has ascended to heaven, with the other apostles in the upper room at Pentecost. She knew then who Jesus was and what he'd done for her and for every human being that ever lived and ever will live. She knew that his death on the cross broke the barrier between us and God. She knew her son Jesus had taken the punishment that we deserved for our sin and he'd done it because of his love for us. Mary would have known then that all was required of her was that she and each one of us too is to believe what Jesus had done, to turn from our sin, to say sorry and to follow him. It's not complicated. But we see in this passage at this time, when Gabriel was speaking to her, she didn't quite get how things were going to happen. I've said before, her question was, how will this happen since I'm a virgin? And he told her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. As a little extra reassurance, he reminded her, she'd probably already have known this, that her older relative, Elizabeth, who was thought to not be able to have children, was six months pregnant. The word Gabriel uses, the Greek, um, for overshadow is episkiso. I don't know if my pronunciation is right, but anyway. E-P-I-S-K-I-Z-O. It means to abide or to dwell. It's the same word that's used in Exodus when Moses has taken the children of Israel out of Egypt and they're wandering around in the desert and they make a tent to worship God in, the tabernacle it's called. And God's presence comes and settles as a cloud over the tabernacle. Sometimes it's referred to as the Shekinah glory of God, but that's not a biblical thing, that's, that's happened since. And it's the same word that is used uh, when it describes God coming and presencing himself in the very holiest place within the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. On the Ark, there is a seat called the Mercy Seat, and it's where a high priest would come once a year and sprinkle the blood of a bull in order that the sins and wrongdoings of the children of Israel could be atoned for, could be forgiven. It's the most holy place and the cloud settled in the mercy seat. It foretells, I think, of the time that Jesus' blood would be shed on the cross and would be the means by which all of humankind could be forgiven.
Gabriel, when he tells Mary that the Holy Spirit will overshadow her, is telling her the actual presence of God will be made in her. God in skin. It's shocking. It's a shocking thing for her to hear. In a sort of way, Mary would become like the ark, carrying the very presence of God. I wonder if she considered this. The Bible tells us that Mary treasured and pondered things in her heart as she tried to process what was happening around her and to her. She was a godly lady, but the enormity of that revelation must truly have stunned her. We've already seen her godly acceptance of this as she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. But doesn't it beg the question of us? Are we willing to accept some of the things God calls us to? I know I'm not always. The Bible doesn't tell us what she understood about the future. <coughs> Although when she took Jesus to the temple at eight days old, Simeon, a man who God had prepared in advance to believe that this really was the promised saviour, took Jesus in his arms and he spoke some really disturbing words to Mary and Joseph, not what you would want to hear spoken over your tiny baby. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Maybe Mary did understand some of the questions this song that's often sung at Christmas poses. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. As a mum, I tried to share the truth of the gospel with my kids as faithfully as possible. I think I probably felt it was the most important role I had in motherhood. I wouldn't say I was the best example of a godly mum or that I am now. And believe me, I'm not being humble. <laughs> it's the truth. Um, I fall way short of godliness. I would love to grow in godliness and in wisdom and love and courage and obedience and humility. Those qualities that Mary displayed so quietly and effectively. She got it wrong sometimes though. She wasn't perfect. She got cross with Jesus when he went to the temple at 12 years old and couldn't understand why he, she, he should be obedient to God rather than her. And later, she and her sons even went and tried to take charge of Jesus because they thought he was out of his mind. She didn't fully understand yet. Motherhood is a costly, painful privilege. And Mary's example of a godly, courageous, humble and obedient servant is an exceptional model, I think, to inspire us. Does her example of courage in the face of ridicule and rejection spur us on as we try to share our faith with others? Or maybe when we choose not to involve ourselves in gossip 
or defend others who can't speak for themselves? Does her obedience and humility challenge me particularly, the me first attitude that we all have in our hearts? Do we begin to see that selfishness can so easily overcome us when we feel any injustice, when we perceive that it's been done to us? How do we cope when God calls us out of our comfort zones? Are we obedient or are we defiant? Like um, old Jonah. <laughs> Does her godly attitude remind us, this particularly makes me think, to take time away and to ponder and to treasure things our Heavenly Father wants to share with us? She was the only human present at Jesus' birth who also witnessed his death. She saw him arrive as her baby son. She watched him die as her saviour. Because of this experience, she knew her need, a need we all share. The reality is we all need that mercy seat, the place where the God-man, God in skin, Jesus, our saviour, gave his life for us so that we can be in relationship with God forever, as we were designed to be at the very beginning when he made us. If you don't know him, and want to make a decision to follow him, it's very simple. I'll just pray a little prayer and you can follow it in your head and say amen at the end if you want to, if that's okay. Father God, thank you that you sent Jesus. Thank you that he died for me. I'm sorry for the sin in my life. I choose to turn away and follow you Thank you for what you did for me. Amen. Amen.